Brilliant. That's great. Well, I saw an Australian television advertisement uh, last week. And this, uh, this ad depicted a, a dinner party. And the guests at the dinner party were all kinds of gods and prophets. So uh, Muhammad was there, and Ganesha, and Thor, and Zeus, and Moses, and Buddha, and a Jedi Knight, and Jesus, and all sorts of others as well. And they're, they're all getting along very well, and they're being hosted by an atheist who's talking about how difficult it was to find a food that they could all eat. And it turns out in the end that it was an ad for lamb, which is apparently the meat that more people can eat, according to this ad. And um, it was all meant in jest, but it highlighted for me a deeper truth uh, that, I think, that I think this showed about the way that society views Jesus. And that is, as one amongst many. One amongst many. Just one amongst a great pantheon of modern gods, uh, which, uh, which we could add to, along with those that were at the table, things like uh, money and success and family and fame. And it doesn't really matter which one you worship, as long as you're happy worshipping them, and as long as we all get along well together. Who is Jesus? One among many? I wonder if you've encountered people who have that view of him, or perhaps you yourself have had that view in the past, or perhaps you have that view now, whether consciously or subconsciously. I think it's a common view, but it's not the view that the gospel, Mark, that the gospel writer Mark would have us believe. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll know we've been in a preaching series on Mark's gospel, looking at the question, who is Jesus? And as it turns out, Mark's answer to this question is quite different to the one that Meat and Livestock Australia would have us believe. I wonder if you were ever subject to show and tell uh, in the early years of primary school. You might have called it something different, uh, but it's where you bring something in from home and then you stand up in front of the class and you talk about what it is that you've bought in and why you bring it in, uh, with the aim, I suppose, of giving children confidence in talking uh, in front of people and being the bane of parents' existence in trying to find things for their children to bring in. But I think it's a good idea, isn't it, to both show and tell. Because just telling is never really going to be as compelling as if you've got something to show as well. Seeing, as well as hearing, is a great way to gain understanding. Well, much like a year two class, first thing on a Monday morning, Mark is all about show and tell. He's fully committed to the idea. In fact, Mark spends much of the first eight chapters of his gospel showing us who Jesus is. And what he shows us is that Jesus is Lord. Three weeks ago, we saw Jesus' lordship over nature and human nature, which was shown through Jesus calming the storm and casting out demons. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus' lordship over sickness and death, which was shown to us as Jesus healed a woman and raised a little girl from the dead. And last week, we saw Jesus' lordship over religion, which was shown as Jesus showed up the Pharisees' religiosity for the hypocrisy that it was. In our passage this week, after eight chapters of showing who Jesus is, we're finally told who Jesus is through the words of Peter, as we see that Jesus is Lord of his people. Perhaps you'd turn to the passage with me. It's uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30, and you can find that on page 112 of the Church Bibles.
So that's Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 27, which says this. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Jesus is Lord. We've uh, seen it, and now we're told it. And he's not just Lord over nature, and Lord over life, and uh, death, and Lord over religion, but also Lord over people. But who are Jesus' people? Well, I want to suggest, firstly, that Jesus' people are the church. Have a look back at verse 27. And Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? At this pivotal moment in Mark's gospel, and this really is a really pivotal moment in Mark's gospel, Jesus is alone with his disciples. In the previous few chapters of Mark, Jesus and his disciples have been persistently, even doggedly, followed by crowds of people. Even when Jesus was trying to take them away to give them some rest time, they're followed by crowds of people. And lots of the miracles and teaching moments that have shown us who Jesus is have happened in front of great crowds of people. But here in this moment, they're alone together. There's a sense of intimacy, even secrecy here, as we're finally told for the first time in the narrative of Mark's gospel who Jesus is. It's true that Mark's let us in on the secret once before. At the very beginning of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is the first time within the story of the gospel that we're told who Jesus is. And it's just Jesus and his disciples there. Why, though, am I saying uh, that Jesus' that Jesus's people are the church when I'm talking about his disciples? Well, in a sense, Jesus' disciples at this point are the church. We saw Jesus calling his disciples earlier on in Mark's gospel, back in chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, which say, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And we saw that that's just what happened. Later on in chapter 6, we read, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. It's no mistake that Jesus chooses twelve disciples to be his inner circle during his earthly ministry. It wasn't like he got to twelve and then like, looked at them and thought that that would be quite a good-sized group. Twelve is a really important number in the Bible, and it represents God's people. Way back in the Old Testament, Jacob had 12 sons who uh, became the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel, God's Old Testament people. And here in Mark, in choosing 12 disciples, Jesus is establishing a new people of God, the church. The 12 disciples are, if you like, the church in embryonic form, the first followers of Jesus, taught and sent out by him. It's a special relationship, and it's the one that Jesus is concerned with in our passage. Having asked the disciples who other people say he is, and having heard their answers, verse 29 says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? It's not Jesus' relation with, relationship with other people in general that is the focus here. It's Jesus' relationship with his chosen people. 
He is the Lord over them. He is the Lord over the church. But his lordship manifests uh, slightly differently here. There have been times so far when Jesus has exerted his authority and lordship in a way that demands unquestioning and instant obedience. He demanded acknowledgement of his lordship from nature as he rebuked the storm and the storm calmed down instantly. Even death gave up its victim at just a word from Jesus. But where he demands acknowledgement of his lordship in other circumstances, here he invites it. Not quiet be still, like with the storm, but who do you say I am? He could have demanded acknowledgement. He certainly had the power to do so, and I think that would be the temptation given that much power, wouldn't it? If you're a fan of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you'll no doubt be familiar with the scene where Frodo, uh, who's the protagonist, offers the one ring uh, to the elf Galadriel, and imagining the power that she would wield if she had it in her possession, uh, she says this, and now at last it comes, you will give me the ring freely, in place of the dark lord you will set up a queen, and I, will be dar- I, will, I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night. Fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountains, dreadful as the storm and the lightning, stronger than the foundations of the earth, all shall love me and despair. It's quite a speech. Uh, And with ultimate power and authority, I think that would be the way you'd be tempted to rule, wouldn't it? As a tyrant, uh, demanding uh, love and, and respect from those who follow you. Jesus could show his lordship in just that way. Don't be in any doubt that he has the power to do that if he'd wanted to. But instead of forcing people uh, to to bow down and fear and trembling before him, he invites his disciples to acknowledge who he is on that dusty road. And that happens in the context of a relationship. He hasn't just wandered up to a group of people and said, hey, who do you say that I am? He spent a couple of years with these guys, teaching and training them, growing in relationship with them. They've been there to see the wondrous works that show that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus has been incredibly patient with them. Earlier on in the chapter, in verses 16 to 20, he was frustrated with them for not yet understanding about him. And it's only now, with all that backstory, that he invites them to acknowledge who he is. Jesus is Lord of all creation. We're told in Colossians that everything was created through and for him. Jesus is Lord of all creation, but he's Lord of the church within the context of an intimate relationship. The church is described elsewhere as Jesus' bride. That's how intimate the relationship is. What a privilege it is to be in a position to have that relationship with the Lord of all creation. Those 12 on the road uh, to the villages around Caesarea Philippi almost 2,000 years ago, and today, anyone who belongs to his church, which began with those 12, anyone who is trusting in him, The Lord of all creation invites us to have him as our Lord. And that brings us to another point. We've seen that Jesus' people are the church, but it would also be true to say that Jesus' people are those who acknowledge him as Lord. Jesus invites his people, the disciples, to acknowledge who he is, and they show uh, that they are his people by doing so. Verse 29 again, "But but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. 
I imagine Jesus asking that question and then there being a bit of a pause in which the disciples are in a little bit of a panic and their minds are working overtime. I imagine some of them might have been remembering back to Jesus' frustration at them for not being able to, to put things together about who he was. Some of them might have had uh, answers in their head but been too scared to give the answer in case it was wrong. I imagine them kind of glancing sideways at each other with you, you answer his question, no, you answer his question kinds of glances. But you can always trust Peter to rush in uh, when no one else will. There are lots of times in the gospel where that means that Peter makes a mistake. But here, Peter hits the nail right on the head. He simply says, you are the Christ. As a matter of fact as that, you are the Christ. And that is no small revelation. We're so used to the fact that Jesus is the Christ that we call him Jesus Christ. But this was big news. Christ is the same word as Messiah, just in a different language. Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek. We usually don't bother translating it and just use one of those, but if we translated it into English, it would be anointed one. It was a term used of Israel's kings and prophets in the Old Testament, but was increasingly used in relation to the promised king in David's line who would rescue God's people and set them free. It's been said that Peter's confession recognized that Jesus was the appointed agent of God whose coming marks the fulfillment of the divine promise and the realization of Israel's hopes. That gives slightly more weight, doesn't it, to Peter's short four-word answer to Jesus' question. Who do you say I am? You are the one that all of God's people have hoped for and hoped in. You are the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. You are the one who will rescue us and set us free. That's who Jesus is, and his people acknowledge that that's the case. It can take time to come to that realization. It had certainly taken time for the disciples to see that that was the case. Uh, remember that it was not that long ago in, in the chapter that Jesus was frustrated that they couldn't see, they couldn't put the pieces together about who he was. They hadn't yet understood about Jesus, but now they do. And I think that the miracle that takes place in between that passage and this passage that we're looking at helps us to understand um, the way that seeing who Jesus was was happening gradually for people at the time. In verses 22 to 26, a man is brought to Jesus who is blind, and Jesus uh, puts his hands on his eyes, and then he asks him if he can see, and he responds that he can see, but not clearly. People seem to be like uh, trees that are walking around, uh, around him. Jesus touches his eyes again, and then he can see everything clearly. But why this kind of two-part miracle? Why does it kind of take two attempts, if you like, when all of Jesus' other healing miracles are instantaneous, showing his lordship over sickness, as we've mentioned? Well, I don't think Jesus looked down after the first laying on of hands and said, are these things on, and, and tried again. No, I think he was showing something of the truth of what was going on in people's understanding of him. This doesn't take anything away from the historiosity, if you like, of the miracle itself. Uh, this man was actually given back his sight. But at the same time, I think that as this man was given him his ability to see physically, we are helped to see how people's view of Jesus was developing. Others had begun to see that Jesus was someone special. Remember the disciples' response to Jesus when he said, who do people say that I am? They said things like John the Baptist and Elijah and one of the prophets. They knew that he was someone special, but they couldn't see clearly yet who he was. All their ideas were people who were forerunners of the Christ. But the disciples, Jesus' people, were about to see clearly 
that Jesus wasn't a forerunner of the Christ, that he was the Christ himself. Maybe you're in a similar position at the moment. Maybe you're coming to realize that this Jesus guy is actually someone special, but you're not uh, fully ready uh, to make your mind up about him yet. Maybe you don't think you have quite enough information yet. And actually, at this point, the disciples themselves don't have all the information that they need either. They've come to understand that Jesus is the Christ. Mark spent the first eight chapters of his gospel showing that that's the case. But now, having seen that he is the Christ, they need to understand what kind of Christ he is. It's what Mark goes on to show in the rest of his gospel. And he actually goes straight there after this passage. Much to the disciples' surprise, Jesus begins to teach that he needs to die and rise again. And incidentally, that's, that is, I think, the fact why, uh, that's the reason why Jesus tells them that they mustn't go and tell other people about him yet, because they don't understand fully who he is. Although later he will tell people that, he, they, uh, that they need to tell other people about him. It's okay to come to a gradual realization of who Jesus is. What's important, though, is that we do come to that realization eventually, that we're eventually able to answer Jesus' question, who do you say I am? This question is not just a small part of a story that's set 2,000 years ago. If Mark's claims about who Jesus is are true, then it's a question for us today also. In fact, it's the most important question we'll ever be asked, and our answer to it is the most important answer we'll ever give. Maybe, as I say, you're here today and you feel like you don't yet have enough information to answer that question. And if that's you, I'd encourage you to go about getting enough information to answer that question. Uh, Perhaps uh, you could go on one of our Alpha courses that we've prayed about and had notices about this evening. That's a great place to go to, to think more about who Jesus is, to get to a place where you can answer Jesus' question, who do you say I am? Because Mark wants us to be able to answer that question. It's been said that in one sense, Mark's gospel is a succession of challenges to make up one's mind from the ministry of John the Baptist onwards. The story Mark tells is not meant to be of academic, historical, or antiquarian interest. You see, Mark's gospel is more like a ballot paper uh, than a novel. I love reading, and I'm very happy reading, uh, but while in my finer moments I might actually kind of think and reflect on the novel that I'm reading, it never forces me to make a decisive decision. A ballot paper is quite different. When I'm reading one of those, a decision is very much required of me. When I'm standing in a voting booth with that piece of paper in front of me, I need to make a choice. And it's the same with Mark's gospel. He wants us to make a decision. At the top of his ballot paper, it says, who do you say Jesus is? And there are only two boxes underneath, the Christ or not the Christ. Who do you say I am? It's vitally important that we can answer that question. Because if we answer it by acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, while it doesn't change his lordship, he'll be Lord regardless of whether we acknowledge it or not, it will change us. At about the same time that Mark was writing his gospel in Rome, Paul was in, was in Corinth writing a letter to the church in Rome. And in that letter, in chapter 10 and verse 9, he writes this, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Messiah, the Christ, came to save God's people. Certainly not in the way that his people then expected him to, but save them nonetheless he did, by dying on a cross and being raised back to life to take the punishment that they deserved for rebelling against God so that they could be in right relationship with him and live with him forever. 
And that salvation applies also to his people today, to the church, to those who acknowledge Jesus as Lord. What Paul wrote was true then and is still true now. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's why Jesus' question is so important, as important for us today as it was for his disciples on that road to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. You can no doubt answer Jesus' question, who do people say I am? You know, you know who other, what other people in society say that Jesus is today? One among many, a prophet, a wise teacher, a good guy that's been quite misrepresented in the press. You've even heard who we've said from the front that Jesus is over the past weeks. Paul said that Jesus is Lord over nature. Christine said that Jesus is Lord over sickness and death. Mark said that Jesus is Lord over religion. I've just been saying that Jesus is Lord of his people. But most important for you is not Jesus' question, who do people say I am? It's not his question, who does, who does Paul say I am, or who does Christine or Mark or Nick say that I am? But who do you say that I am? If you've not answered that question yet, let me encourage you to do so. Perhaps now you, you are ready to answer that question. Perhaps you've been ready, but you've not yet answered it. Let me encourage you to answer that question tonight. Perhaps you're not yet ready to answer that question. I encourage you to take the steps that you need to take to be able to answer it. Or maybe you've already answered that question. Maybe you've acknowledged Jesus as Lord. Maybe you did that a long time ago. Let me encourage you to remind yourself that that's your answer to Jesus' question, who do you say I am? Perhaps you need to remind yourself that Jesus is your Lord. Perhaps there are areas of your life in which you need to remind yourself, Jesus is my Lord in this area of my life. Who do you say I am? Let's all stand together.